This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We have been talking about uh, new information where the chief public health officer, Teresa Tam, is saying that likely if you've had a first shot of AstraZeneca, you will be able to choose what your second shot is, including possibly a second shot. Now, the first doses were suspended because of a one in 60,000 risk of getting a very rare blood clot. But if it's a second shot, if you've already had it and you are fine, the chances are one in a million. Uh, So uh, I'm curious, what would you do given the choice? If you've had AstraZeneca first, would you just take a second shot of that? Or would you take something different? And that, of course, is pending more data on whether it's safe and effective to take a different second shot. The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to Dr. Alon Vaisman and Dr. Timothy Sly. And of course, it's, it's not just about vaccines, but it's also a question of how much COVID-19 is in the in the community. And we've seen the numbers go down, but they're still pretty high. Dr. Vaisman, how do you feel about the kind of numbers we're seeing now? And, and should the number of cases every day, should that be what we're focusing on? Yeah, the, the case numbers have gone down dramatically. The peak of total numbers was in the middle of April. The peak number of patients in the intensive care unit was in around May thirty, uh, May 1st or April 30th. So everything is trending in the right direction. The overall volume of patients still in the ICU remains high because we are seeing, generally speaking, younger patients, and those patients are generally having longer admissions. And in terms of what we should be looking at, I think it's important for everyone to reorient to why we had lockdowns in the first place, which is not to overwhelm the healthcare system. That is really the most important aspect out of all this. If patients are not, patients who are getting COVID are not going to the hospital, getting sick and dying, then the COVID itself has less of a relevance. And that's because of the the vaccination rates. Vaccination rates drive cases down. They drive down numbers of severe cases. So even if the case numbers are high or comparatively high, but the hospitalizations are minimal, that, that is the most important thing to look at is what's going on in the hospital. And that's, that's really the one the number that I think most people are going to be focusing on the next few weeks. Dr. Sly, what do you make of the numbers as we're at right well, now? Well, do- Dr. Vaisman has nicely summarized that, and I think it's, uh, it's good to listen to that kind of a, a perspective. But don't forget now, we are easily adapting to what we hear. Uh, and just to hear that roughly we've had, what is it, about 2,000 a day at the moment we're at, and we think, oh, well, that's much better than 4,000 a day. But hold on a second. That's... Just in one day, one 24-hour period, and, and another 2,000 cases have been officially confirmed, of, of whom about 20 will die. This is not just in one day. In addition to all the days that we've had leading up to this, we need to see those case numbers getting down to two digits, ideally, before we can really begin to relax. I mean, you know, we need to see a number of these indicators coming down. The, the R... Uh, not, uh, the, sorry, the R, the effective R is at the moment is about 0. 0.95, 0. 0.94. Something let, let me just interject to remind people what the R is, and that's the uh, replication rate. And uh, if it if it's less than one, then that's a good thing. Go on, Dr. Sly, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's the effective one. That's the one that changes day by day, not the initial R0. But, yeah, we'd like to see that it's below one. Let's keep it low, and let's get it suppressed even further down. The positivity rate, uh, I understand, in the last 24 hours is about 9%. Now, this time last year, we were sitting at about point. 
7%. And I was worried it was getting up to 1%. And other countries were in 3%. And the United States was about 18% in some areas. And I thought, my goodness, we, we, we don't want to be up there. Well, we've been up there, and we're still very high. 9% of, of, of tests are coming back positive. That shows that whether we're seeing case counts going up or down, there's a lot of it moving through the community. That has to be reduced before we can begin to relax properly as well. So there's lots of stuff to really be concerned about here. Keep an eye on the, on the ball, finger on the pulse, whatever analogy you want to use. Uh, the other thing is that what we've seen in the past is that we get spikes after special days, the last one being Mother's Day, but we're heading into the Victoria Day weekend, May 2-4, whatever you want to call it. Dr. Vaseman, are people in the hospitals worried about that? Yeah, it's absolutely, as you mentioned, important to recognize that there are certain instances where these case numbers do spike. It's important to recognize that often in the setting of Ontario that occurred because a lockdown order or a stay-at-home order had occurred in an untimely manner. In other words, just after an holiday occurred. So two good examples of that would have been the Christmas Boxing Day. Then the most recent would have been the Easter holiday. So if we maintain the stay-at-home order, which looks like it will be through the Victoria Day long weekend, Hopefully that bump that you're referring to, hopefully that will be somewhat lower this time around. Plus, we have such a very rapid rate of vaccination over the last few weeks that the effect of this bump hopefully will be not felt as much as the previous one. There's a few reasons to be optimistic, but absolutely people need to maintain the practices uh, that are recommended by the government until after the uh, restriction has been lifted. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's also we're seeing the weather is nicer. And of course, there's less chance of transmission outside. But uh, I don't know if uh, people are going to really uh, hunker down. Uh, Dr. Slyer, are you worried about that? Well, one thing from what you just said, I think it's worth bringing out. We need good news. We need some refreshing uh, uh, positivity about this. I don't mean the virus positivity. Uh, just about a week ago, no, less than that, about five days ago, Dr. Henry in BC pointed out that in, they, in their measures in the last few weeks, it's shown that the people who've been just diagnosed positive with the coronavirus 19, 98% of them had not been vaccinated. Less than 2%, 1.7% of those had had one vaccination shot. And less, it was 0.2, I believe it was, of a percent had that double. In other words, the proof is right there. The vaccination really does go a long way to protecting not just the individual, but the society. So we should be tying up with this increased in vaccination rates with the, the prospect of a better summer if we get we get if we maintain that going in the right direction, not relaxing too much. I have another question. I saw a tweet from Dr. Nathan Stahl, who's been a, a frequent guest on this show, and uh, he, of course, is a geriatrician. And he's saying that instead of moving to vaccinate kids, we should emulate successful countries like Israel, where they focused on giving a second dose to older adults who are more vulnerable and that the kids end up being protected if their parents are vaccinated. Dr. Vaseman? Yes, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. When you look at how low the morbidity and mortality rate is among the younger population and how high it is among the people who are older. So if you even look at the 80 and above group, that group in many parts of Ontario, unless they were in a long-term care facility, they are still waiting for their second dose in most parts of Ontario. That's really, really significant when you think about the fact that the one dose offers high immunity, but not complete immunity against severe disease and against dying. So I do think prioritizing the, those individuals who are older makes a lot of sense, uh, given the data, given what we know about how the disease affects those individuals. Dr. Sly? Yeah, and we need to keep, to make that kind of decision, we need to keep a really good close watch on the date that comes along. Everything's determined by that. And this, to, to this event, uh, it's nice to see that the governments, are, various governments, provincial and federal, are beginning to move on this issue of using the rapid tests, which have been sitting in warehouses for months and months. Uh, yes, we've discussed this in this program as well, but that that turns a flashlight on when you're in the dark room. You can begin to see where the virus has been, where it is right now, and where we should be concentrating on it. So if, for example, we don't see a lot of uh, resurgence of illness among the 
old old folks, uh, then that's one decision. If we begin to see it uh, occurring again, then let's rapidly give these folks their second shot because we need to concentrate. You see, back when we were con- controlling smallpox, we tried the mass vaccination for everywhere. This is back in Bangladesh. But then that wasn't working. What did work was a ring vaccination technique where you descended on the case, surrounded them with all kinds of vaccination, friends and neighbors, and then stood back and wait for the next case. And that's what brought smallpox to a final end. Forget smallpox now, but we're doing a similar kind of thing here. So mass in the background, but concentrating where the hot spots are. Let's carry on with that. Okay, I'll take a quick question from Debbie in Guelph. Hi, Debbie. Hi. Um, I myself had Pfizer, literally no reaction to sore arm. But my my uh, daughter, who's in her mid forties, she had a Pfizer, uh, or she had the AstraZeneca, and she had what I feel to be not just a mild reaction, uh, but a, a, a rather bad reaction. She had uh, numerous bouts of like severe diarrhea. She blacked out. Um, she finally made it to her bed and could not call out for help. She was like so out of it. Eventually she could, she texted my son-in-law who was downstairs and just said, come. Um, she couldn't, she shook the bed all night with chills, couldn't uh, eat anything or didn't even want to drink anything and, you know, I mean, it was 24 hours, but she still feels kind of tired and crappy. And it was three weeks on Monday that she had her injection. I'm worried about her having her second one. I don't know how she'd ever book the second one because I'd be hesitant to do it myself. Um, well, uh, people apparently will have their choice. I'm going to see if the doctors want to respond to that. Thanks for your call, Debbie. Yeah, what would you uh, say to her based on that? Dr. Wilson should answer. She, he's the clinician. Uh, sorry, I didn't catch the beginning. Was that the individual had a, their first dose of the vaccination or was it a COVID infection? Uh, well, it's, it's hard to know. Uh, it was the vac- She said it was the result of the vaccination. Right. So I think it's important for people to recognize that the vaccination side effects that have been documented across millions of people are all very temporary and they occur for only one to two days. Um, some of the symptoms that are described there are not common, such as vomiting or diarrhea, and that may have been attributable to a different uh, cause, uh, especially in people who are older. They may have other explanations for those symptoms. So I think um, it's important to be recognize there aren't any permanent long-term side effects associated with the, uh, certainly the mRNA vaccines. And as we've all well documented, the most important side effect of the other vaccine, the AstraZeneca, is the clotting. But outside of that, um, they're all very temporary, and sometimes they may be significant, but certainly at this point, we need to recognize that any of those side effects are outweighed by the significant benefits from the vaccine. Uh, Dr. Sly, what would you like to leave us with? Oh, uh, I'll leave you with the fact that uh, Canada is doing much better than I thought of the vaccination, but we're still virtually at the bottom of the heap in terms of fully vaccinated. I think the islands of Tonga and Mauritius only those two places are, are lower than we are in terms of total vaccination. We're sitting at about 3.7. The rest of the world is way, way ahead of us. So we've got a lot of catching up to do. Let's get the vaccines into arms as soon as possible. And Dr. Vaisman, 15 seconds. I think uh, there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic for this coming summer. Cases are dropping. ICU cases are dropping. The vaccination rates are rising. So a lot of reasons to be hopeful this coming through a few months. Okay, a nice note to end on. Thank you so much, Dr. Timothy Sly and Dr. Alon Vaisman. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We now have a partial answer to the questions I've been asking about using the AstraZeneca vaccine for second doses. Dr. Teresa Tam, Canada's chief public health officer, says she expects that the 2.1 million Canadians who received their first dose of AstraZeneca will be able to choose the vaccine they would be getting second, uh, including the option of AstraZeneca with informed consent. Now, 
The evidence so far shows that the risk of blood clots, which is what led to the suspension of AstraZeneca for first doses, is down to about one in a million for second doses. So ultimately, though, it is up to the provinces. And we still have not heard what Ontario plans to do, notably and most urgently with about 50,000 AstraZeneca doses that are set to expire very soon. And letting them expire, in my opinion, would be practically criminal. So what do you think? I know that a lot of people in our age group have received AstraZeneca, people 55 and over, because uh, that is what came available first, while the others were only going to people over 80. So 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. On Friday, the last free-for-all Friday, I heard from people who said they'd be delighted to have their second dose of AstraZeneca. Yesterday, we saw the results from a Spanish study, though, that said that mixing doses should be fine. Right now, I would like to bring in Dr. Alon Vaisman, infectious disease and infectious control physician at the University Health Network, and Dr. Timothy Sly, an epidemiologist and professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University. Welcome and thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Thank you. So, uh, first of all, uh, what do you think of this that Dr. Tam has weighed in on AstraZeneca telling us that, yes, uh, we would likely be able to choose? Dr. Sly? Well, the situation now is quite different than it was uh, five weeks ago, roughly, when the uh, the situation was about... Let me draw the analogy. The ship is going towards the rocks. The chances are it probably will hit the rocks... The message is, grab a life belt. Just grab It doesn't matter whether it fits perfectly or it's the wrong color or the whistle's working. Just grab a life belt, put it on, because you're going to need it. Now, the situation's a little bit less. It's probably circumnavigated the rocks. We probably can have a chance to choose the one that fits better and the one that we like the color of and the one the whistle works on. That's the difference at the moment. There's the, 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 the risk from, uh, any risk from, from, from being vaccinated with this particular vaccine is still remarkably low. It's astronomically low, but it is still there. But we can ignore that uh, when the, when the urgency is 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 it, we're facing down the urgency as 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 we were about four or five weeks ago. But one in a million, really? Oh no, one in a million is for the second shot. Exactly, that's what we're talking about. Oh yeah, yeah, for the second, second shot. shot. Many of my friends, my family, older members of the family, have had this, and and they are looking forward to the second one in this one if they can get it. No problem at all. I mean, they've done the right thing, even with the first shot. They did the right thing at that time, and certainly there would be no shadow of a doubt about using it as a second shot either. Yeah, I was surprised that you were saying uh, because yeah, it's it's not going to be used for first doses, as far as I understand, but Mm. there are second doses, and uh, I've heard from a lot of people who are wondering, Dr. Vaisman, does that mean we'll be able to get our second shots sooner than four months? Yeah, so far the supply looks like it's improving. We're hearing more and more optimistic news from the Pfizer supply. So with that in mind, then it looks like people will be able to get things uh, sooner. So that's going to be very beneficial for a lot of groups of people who got vaccinated back in late February, early March, who were at that time told that they would have to wait four months. That includes some healthcare workers as well as the uh, people who are age 80 and above and everyone after that. So that will make a huge difference. We're able to vaccinate people much sooner. Right. But I'm also uh, talking about AstraZeneca here, people who got the first AstraZeneca dose. And uh, if if it's only being used for second doses, assuming the province goes along with that, then they might be able to get it sooner. The The optimal time for that one, I believe, is three months, not four months. That's correct. It may not make a big difference because it goes from 12 weeks to 16 weeks. So the trials that AstraZeneca was based on and also the duration that was used in the UK, where most of the data so far has come from, the duration would be 12 weeks in between so yes, if the, if that supply is improved and people are not getting AstraZeneca for this, or some people are choosing not to, then the remaining people who do choose to use it may have their vaccination 
perform sooner. And, uh, you know, uh, what would you advise people now? I mean, we've had a preliminary results from a study on mixing vaccines that looks okay. Uh, they, there's another study out of the UK that said that mild and moderate symptoms would be worse. Uh, so uh, Canada's waiting. I mean, would, would you say, uh, is it better to take your second shot AstraZeneca or to wait till all the uh, information is in? That's a, yeah, it's a very tough question because you're looking at a scenario where we don't have any long-term data. We only have a little bit of short-term data with the mixing. In terms of safety, I think, as you discussed, the risk of the vaccine-induced clotting is about one in a million. And the other side effects associated with mixing vaccines looks to be a little bit higher, but only very mild. But from the side effects standpoint, it looks like it's okay. The question is whether we think that there's going to be the same long-term benefit associated with mixing vaccines versus getting two of the same. So it's a very it's a very tricky call to make. I don't think we know one way or another right now whether it's going to be beneficial from the efficacy point of view to do, to do either way. So it's important. I think the decision that was made is a very good one to leave it to the patients to decide. If there's a very clear direction to go in, then we would, or the public health would make that recommendation. Dr. Sly? Yeah, the the big study from England, the one done by the Oxford team, it's it's coming out in dribs and drabs. What we have had is the is the preliminary result in terms of is the question is there any adverse effects or are there any adverse effects? And the answer is they're all mild. There's a slight increase when you have a, a, a mixed vaccine than when you have the same one, but it's just what we're talking about, swollen arms, and a little bit feverish for there, too. Nothing it's all worried about. We're all waiting for the big result, which is the, uh, the efficacy, the, uh, the ability to generate antibodies from this, and uh, the preliminary sort of sense is that they, it should be no disadvantage at all to mix them, and there might even, there might theoretically even be an advantage, but we have to wait and see for the Oxford results to come out. Yeah, all... but there, the, again, the, the, it's a timing thing. I mean, yeah. a lot of people who took AstraZeneca took it because it was the first available. Exactly. And well, it might be... Those results within, I would think, about a week or 10 days. I think we're going to see those next results coming out. Oh, really? Yep, yep, very soon. And what about uh, the, the government is holding on to these 50,000 doses? Uh, do you have any idea, Dr. Vaisman, when there's going to be a decision on that? No, I'm, I'm not sure I'm not about when that'll be changed or when those doses will be released for there to be used. I think, um, as it was mentioned, there are probably holding on to see if there's more data available. If you look at when the AstraZeneca would have been started, uh, in terms of the timing, then we're looking at giving second doses, not quite yet, but, but fairly soon in the next few weeks in early June. So I think they're, based on their the rollout in Ontario, I think they might be waiting a little bit more to see if there's any more data from around the world. Right, but aren't these doses going to expire then? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure when the expiry date would be for those individual doses, but... Um, yeah, I mean, certainly there, there is a time sensitivity to it, which I, I would think that they're keep, keeping an eye on. Okay, let me give the numbers out again. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. I'm talking to Dr. Timothy Sly and Dr. Alon Vaisman. We've been talking about AstraZeneca because Canada's uh, chief public health officer has just said that if you got a first shot of AstraZeneca, you will likely be able to choose your what your second shot is, and you could get a second shot of AstraZeneca with informed consent. I know that people had a lot of questions about that, uh, and uh, the doctors are here to take your calls if you have questions. Also, we're awaiting a new framework for reopening. We'll see what impact that will have on everything. Right now, we're going to take a short break, and we will be back on the other side of it. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. 
The pandemic has upended many things, the way we work and the way we connect with others. We wear masks, wash our hands and disinfect surfaces incessantly. But there is one hygiene habit that's falling off. Showering. If you have been showering less often than you used to, you are not alone. A recent British survey found that 17% of people abandoned daily showers, and judging by social media, many, many people here in Canada and the United States have done the same. It's something that dermatologist Dr. Sandy Scottnicki has been advocating for years. Showering every day can strip the skin of its natural oils, and she's also been very vocal about the dangers of all the skincare products we use, and that's one of the main focuses of her book, Beyond Soap. So what about you? We're on the radio here. We only need your first name. Have you been showering less often? How often is that? And is it a big change from what your habits were? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll free 1-866-744-740. And, and by the way, if you have other questions about skincare, uh, you can have those too, because I would now like to welcome dermatologist Dr. Sandy Scott-Nicky, who's the founding director of the Bay Dermatology Centre. Hi, Dr. Scott-Nicky. Hi there, Libby. How are you? Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for coming on. So, uh, full disclosure, um, (laughs) I've moved to uh, often, not all the time, every other day. I'm I'm not sure that'll hold in the hot weather, but how about you? Can we ask you? Um, yeah, I shower, like, I, see, I'm in my office, so I see a lot of patients, so I, um, I'm, I'm probably, you know, there's some exposure there. I, I do shower probably every other day, but I, the same, part of the thing we've talked about before is I don't wash my whole body, right? I just wash underarms and the groin, sort of the bits, as we call it. The bits. But, um, yeah, and I, you know, I, and I'm very fast, I'm not too hot, and, and I don't use real soap, I use cleansers. But I find it's really fascinating. I was just reading a little bit before before I got on here. Like, there's such a conversation now about this. A lot of people, you know, what's really interesting is a lot of people are are just showering less because they're not going out, they're not getting dressed to go to work, etc. But what they're finding is that they feel better. They their skin feels better. They're less dry. Their hair feels healthier. I mean, you know, we've talked about this. I talked about this in my book. Showering and is and you said hygiene. I would argue that it's not showering and bathing is not hygiene. Hygiene is about decreasing the transmission of disease, which is washing your hands. Washing your body and hair is more about self care and social norms. I mean, obviously, if you have skin disease or acne and things like that, it's it's important to to clean. And if you're wearing sunscreen and you're feeling you're outdoor with pollution, it's important to to shower that stuff off. But the act of a daily shower is is not really about health. And that's kind of what I talk about in my book. Okay, well, that's that's interesting. I just use personal hygiene. Yeah, that's yeah, that's yeah. that's what the term has become. It's it's uh, you know how how you make sure that uh, you know you smell nice and all of that. Right. Well, you know, I learned a new term as well because I was reading uh, there was an article also in the New York Times last week about this about people showering less. So there's a term called ablution, which is the act of washing oneself, and uh, I didn't know that. Um, some other interesting facts about showering is one eight-minute shower takes 17 gallons of water. That's right. It's also doing it less yeah. is better for the environment. Ablution totally. is, is almost a biblical term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, and then the other fact that I learned was, uh, which I think I read years ago, but um, these things are just becoming more mainstream also about the climate change aspect or the, the uh, environmental aspect of showering every day. A five-minute, uh, running the water for five minutes is similar to uh, running a light bulb, a 60-watt light bulb for 14 hours. So I think, you know, there's a bigger thing just about hygiene and what you're putting on your skin and also what's going down the drain and out into the environment, right? And all the plastic bottles. I mean, there's so many things to, to, to you know, point to the fact that daily showers are not good for our skin, not good for the environment, not good for energy consumption, water consumption, the list goes on and on, um, but it's going to be hard to convince most a lot of people because it's become a social norm, and we like to smell and feel good. So, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, my husband showers every day, washes his yeah. hair every day. I know his hair. What's <laughs> left of it? I might add. <laughs> yeah, totally not necessary. But 
social norm, right? Um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's neat though that the conversation is is uh, is just being had about uh, the fact that it's not necessarily it's not necessary, and many people feel better. Okay, yeah. let's take a call from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hello, Libby. Thanks for taking the call. Um, yeah, it's that's an interesting conversation. Um, <laughs> I hadn't thought too much about the environmental aspects of it, but uh, wow, that's that's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, how very... much energy we use to um, heat the water? Mm-hmm. Um, what I've anyway, I've gone from when I was driving my bus, I've gone from four times a week. Um, years ago, I had a dermatologist tell tell me stop showering every day. It's not yeah. good for your skin. Yeah. So yeah, we tell um, this all. We say this all the time. With the hair, um, uh, yeah. don't wash your hair every day. It's it's it's, it's bad for your hair. So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I shower at least now. I'm down to twice a week, and <laughs> unless good. I have to go out somewhere where I'm meeting people, and then sometimes it's three times a week. That, yeah. That's that's good. Twice a week. Yeah. Yeah, twice a week is fine. I mean, you know, there's also, like, before indoor plumbing, people just had a basin and washed themselves. Um, You know, I've done that. I have to say, it can be some, when I was home and not going into the office, like, that's that's the thing with the pandemic. Some people just wipe your underarms and change your clothes and you're good to go. I mean, uh, I think it's, 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 uh, some people find that gross, because part of it is, uh, we, we talked about, I talked about this in my book about, uh, the connection of, um, like soap was the first beauty product. So the connection of adding kind of being clean and smelling nice to being socially acceptable, being wealthy, um, and, and connecting it with beauty. If you look at some of the old beauty ads from the 40s and 50s when soap was the only beauty product there was, it said there would be like, if you use soap bars, uh, you will be more successful. You will get a husband. You will <laughs> you will be, you know, accepted in polite society. So it's that hook with the beauty and and sort of um, self care and wanting to be socially accepted. That's so. When you tell people oh, I'm only showering twice a week, they feel like that's gross because they've been conditioned that it's not good for us. But it, it actually is the reverse. Like it's better for us. <laughs> oh, okay, Ron. I guess you're not too worried about well, other, all that stuff. Well, the other thing I was going to say, and this is a quick comment, listen, is that I am washing my hands more since yes. the pandemic started than I ever did before. And I can say, honestly, I did get a flu shot in the fall, but I haven't, I haven't even been sick or the slightly yeah. sick at all this year, period. That's really unusual for most people, I think, who you catch, used to catch the flu. They used to catch a cold. I've had none of that this year. Good for and you, Ron. And, and we sort of talk, touched on that. That's hygiene. Hygiene is washing your hands. Cleaning the cutting board after you cut a chicken, um, washing your hands after you you know go to the bathroom. That's hygiene. But washing your body and hair has very little to do with hygiene. It's it's more about self care and social norms again. Okay, Ron, thanks for that. You know, uh, as as he was saying that, I I was touching this one spot uh, on my left hand. Well, it's all over between yeah. my fingers. And um, I've got to say that it is like shoe leather. Yeah. And there is almost nothing I can do about it. I'm not sure why it's more on my left than on my right. Um, you might not be uh, rinsing off as well there. Like sometimes we don't rinse off the detergent as much on our non-dominant hand. Oh, it's just yeah, there. and it and it cakes between the the finger webs. You know, just to touch on that, Libby, like when people, I get it, I get the question almost every day in my office from people with dry hands, and and they'll the question will be, what's the best moisturizer? And I flip it around and say that you're asking the wrong question. It's what's the best cleanser? Because if you use non soap based, um, you know, sodium low sulfate non like, cleansers that don't strip the skin, um, things like if I'm allowed to say names like Cetaphil, CeraVe, Aveeno, those kinds of bars or cleansers, you won't be as dry. And and then on top of that, there's a misconception that um, water and soap is less damaging than hand sanitizers. Hand sanitizers are less damaging to your skin than water and soap. Water I was going to ask yeah. you that because honestly... I don't really like hand sanitizer, so I just wash my hands. No, it's they're much less uh, they must much less damaging to the skin. And you know, the CDC has come out with that. It's been in the in the literature for for years. 
Um, because in healthcare, we've had this problem since SARS, right? So uh, with hand dermatitis in healthcare workers, because of the increased sanitizing uh, that occurred, uh, the, the increased huge wave after SARS, which is, is even more now in, in, uh, with, with COVID. But no, hand sanitizers, any hand sanitizer is less damaging than water and detergent. But I've also seen that hand sanitizer, that uh, can, it can, you know, well, sure can. neutralize can. like some, it, it, it can, you know, you can get used to it and, and it won't protect or something like that. I've- oh, no, I don't agree. The way, the way detergents and hand sanitizers work is they disrupt the, the, the lipid or the fat envelope of a virus. Or, so that has to be able to break the, the, the you know, soaps and detergents decrease fats, right? That's what, when you, you have a greasy pan and it breaks it up. So the virus is covered, the envelope or the sort of coating of the virus is, is made out of lipids or fats. And that's how detergents and sanitizers break it down. So you don't know, you don't get used to things. It's not about a, it's not, it doesn't work that way because it's a physical disruption. It's not a, um, like anything like a bacterial resistance or anything like that. Okay, let's take a call from Debbie in Toronto. Hello, Debbie. Hello there. Hi there. Hi, yes, you're on the air. Go ahead. Okay, I was calling because it's relating to your topic of taking a shower. Uh Uh-huh. Now, even before this pandemic, I used to take every a, a shower every single day, but I've washed the hair like once or twice a week, so it's every four days. Right. Just the fact of getting in the shower every day and drying off at the towel, my heels and skin on my heels led to dry skin. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, stop having the showers every day. Just (laughs) shower when I have to wash the hair and wash the rest of me other ways. Right. And, And have your hands and feet improved? Mm-hmm. Now, the top part of my hands sometimes get dried, and I know when I put sanitizer on, the, like, the bottom parts of my hands, because that's where I mainly touch things, mm-hmm. and sometimes, like, I would be rubbing that sanitizer even over the top of the hands, and that led me to dry skin on the top of the hands. Sure, yeah. I mean, they're a little drying, too, but overall, you've noticed showering less has improved your skin, um, is what I'm sort of hearing. Yeah. But I still wash and the rest of me and change underwear and socks and that every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. And I've I've had no complaints of anybody saying to me I smell or anything. And <laughs> yeah, I know I've I know. been tested for the COVID four times and all four times they said negative. And I think it's my cleanliness that does that. <laughs> okay, <laughs> Debbie, thank you for that. Well, okay, I love you, Libby. I gotta meet you someday. <laughs> okay, thank you. That's very sweet of you. Okay, people, we're we're talking about changing showering habits amid the pandemic, and people finding it's better if they don't shower every day. Better for their skin. Better for their hair. The numbers to call: four one six three six zero zero seven forty. Toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven. 40. Uh, let us know. Are you showering less? Are you showering the same? How often? Uh, I have to say, Dr. Scott Nicky, that in that New York Times article you mentioned, they interviewed yeah. a woman who said she's gone to once a week. And, and to me, yeah. that's a bridge too far. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, that's people staying home and, you know, not needing to, to go out. And, you know, I, I'll give you my own little um, anecdote. I mean, I, I, uh, I love clothes, you know, that lets yes, me know each other well. So do I. <laughs> I. I have been, like, wearing my scrubs every day. And, uh, and you know, like, when you don't have the accoutrements of you know, your hair and your jewelry and your whatever, you don't really feel like doing all that stuff. So I roll out of bed, put my, put my scrubs on, and go to work. I don't even wear makeup because wearing makeup under a mask can aggravate your mask reaction. So it's just a whole different change. And actually, a few times when I did... When I did dress up, I thought, geez, this is a lot of work. <laughs> it's, it's a lot of Well, I, I have to tell you, I do wear, a, and 
a very little bit of makeup. Yeah. And I haven't worn heels for about mm-hmm. a year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I do shoot TV shows every now and again. And I used to always wear a dress and heels there. And, yeah. and you know, it's it's a little sad. I have to say, I see the closet with all my nice dresses. I know, I know, and it's like they're lonely. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a bit of a, like, because I do enjoy the sort of freedom and the, the lack of having to, I don't know, prim myself, but I do miss it. It's fun. But um, yeah, I think it's just having a conversation about it. And when it, it really, the conversation is about health. And, uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, that's what the book was about, too. I mean, do we need to, whether you do or not, or maybe even just think about it or change your habits slightly. You know, I have one patient, he's so funny, every time he sees me, he says, every time I'm in the shower and I go to grab the cleanser, you're in my head. Like, I'm like, nope, no, can't do that. (laughs) So, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Okay, let's hear from Art in Kitchener. Hi, Art. Hello, how are you this morning? Fine, it's this afternoon already, Art. (laughs) A little behind the times here. I I just like to say, when when I'm 70 years old, and I'm from the East Coast, and when we were young, um, Saturday night was bath night pretty much for for us as kids. And then as I grew older, and um, I... um, I'm a musician, so I was on the road for a couple of years, and there I would shower pretty well every day. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, when I worked at my job now, I would shower pretty well every day. I just finished working a couple of years ago, but I would shower every day. But now that I'm retired, um, and especially with the, uh, um, the COVID epidemic and stay-at-home orders, I shower like twice a week, sometimes three times a week, and... I find that to be um, really enough. My skin feels a little bit better and not as dried out. Like I say, I'm a senior. I can understand where people's skin starts to dry after they're older yeah. and stuff, mm-hmm. but mine still seems fairly supple for an old guy like me. <laughs> you're not that old, Art. No, yeah. you're not that old. No, 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 not anymore. I don't think that anymore. Um, I, you made a good point, though, uh, and it is a scientific fact that the, our skin, um, as we age, decreases its ability to make sort of natural oils, what we call ceramides and lipids. So that's why you're more at risk of, of getting dry um, as you age, and so this winter itch. And a lot of that is exacerbated by water and cleansing. So, you know, most of us as dermatologists will tell, especially our older patients, uh, not to shower every day. You know, and, and, and that's why we have so many moisturizers because and conditioners for our hair because the detergents and washing remove our, our natural oils. And a little bit is necessary, but it's a whole industry, right? I mean, it's a vicious cycle. Multi-billion dollar industry. Yeah. yeah. The more okay. you... And I'm, I'm really wash. happy you ladies kind of mentioned that because that was something that never even entered my mind mm-hmm. as far uh-huh. as uh, disposing of the bottles and whatever, so... Yeah, it's a big carbon footprint, showering. It's like they say, you learn something new every day. That'll that'll keep you young, Art. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Have a good day. You know, Art mentioned the transition uh, into retirement, and Mm -hmm. I hate to bring up my husband. He's not here to defend himself. (laughs) Poor guy. But he's more or less retired, and he still jumps yeah. into the shower every yeah. morning, often yeah. right before he's about to bike 60 kilometers, right. um, which, which I find a little incomprehensible, but I think it's partly uh, as a, you know, a mental thing. Totally. It's a habit. It's also, you know, the wake up factor. People are like, I just can't, I need a shower to wake myself up. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not, there's no, there's no right or wrong. It's just, it's having a discussion and sort of thinking about what you're doing. Like, it's like what you're eating or what you're drinking. Or, um, and, you know, is it actually necessary? And, and I, I really love it when light bulbs go out, like with, with art, he's like, Oh, I never thought about the carbon footprint. Like that's huge. Right. So if you can just, you know, having a conversation about it, but you're right. Your, your husband's um, habits are, are just that they're habits. They're not about hygiene or, or health. It's because it makes them feel good. Yeah. So, and so that should bring up the question of, of exercise. And I, I saw on Instagram, you were answering a question about that. Mm-hmm. So people say, well, I, I exercise mm-hmm. and I sweat and therefore I shower. Mm-hmm. Well, water is a solvent. So you don't need, you don't necessarily need detergent. You can have a quick rinse or, or as one of my colleagues 
uh, coined my, uh, he said sluice. You can sluice. Um, sluice? So, I've uh, never heard that. I know, I know. He's, he's a guy in uh, New York. He's really cute. He said, I just tell my patients to sluice after they work out. So, sluice. you know, uh, quick, quick rinse, maybe wash your underarms because your feet, because you've been sweating and they might be stinky, but with, with detergent, but you know, it doesn't need to be, doesn't need to be, um, long or sudging your whole body unless you've been, you know, if you're out biking wearing sunscreen. And actually, you know, it is sort of silly to shower before you work out because you should try to do them both, get the pre and the shower, you know, do it all in one after you work out. But sometimes depending... Um, if you're working out later in the at night or a day, you, well, you well, yeah, yes. Sometimes uh, you just don't want to say anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but exactly. and you mentioned sunscreen, so yeah. we're heading into sunscreen season. Mm-hmm. Is sunscreen something that you have to wash off? You should, yeah, you should. So I mean, that's that's again where you know you kind of. Where's that? Because I have pushback from people. Like we live in Canada. My book was published in Canada, but I've had readers say, oh, "I live in California. I, you know, wear sunscreen every day. I want to wash that off." Like that. Yeah, you should. Um, but uh, and you know, you if you're in a warm environment and you're outdoors and there's pollution and you're sweating and there's particulate matter and you're dirty and like I, I get that. It's just it's just having the thinking about it when if you don't need to do it. Okay. So is is, is so. We might change now that we're heading into summer. It's going to be 28 degrees today. Oh wow! Is it really? Oh, uh, that's what try. that's what the forecast says. Who knows? It might already be 28 degrees. I'm sitting in the yeah. studio. Yeah. Uh, but does does that change the guidance? Well, I think I think it's important to remove uh, sunscreen uh, generally as a general statement. Uh, you know, if you if you put it all over your whole body, it's important to wash that off. So that entails having a, a quick shower. But um, so, yeah, I think your habits are, are slightly different depending on your climate, where you where you live and the season, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. We have a few minutes left. So let's talk a little bit about uh, products. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering, and uh, are people using fewer body uh, beauty products mm-hmm. in the pandemic? Yeah, it's interesting. There was some some stats on that. I had to do an article for something else. I can't remember. And uh Makeup is a little less because, you know, we're not going out. But skincare, I mean, so a lot of, a lot of what we've talked about with respect to showering is self-care. And self-care is huge right now. I mean, what the hell else we got to do except pamper ourselves, right? So the sales of skincare products are actually higher. Really? Um, Yeah, because people are, you know, like peels and masks and things because, um, people are at home wanting to sort of, you know, pamper themselves. So I, I think that all that stuff is on the rise. Um, but in general, as a general statement, the cosmetic industry, I think the pendulum has swung to more, to a less is more minimalist kind of, you know, not the 12 step method because people realize that too much is not good for our skin, which I talk about in my book, too many products stacking, you know, with each other. And, um, you know, regulation on skincare products could be improved in some, some manner. So I think in generally, general, the pen, the pendulum has swung to more minimalist. And, but during the pandemic, yeah, people are, are buying and, and pampering. Now, one of the things that, um, I think is becoming more popular are, you know, oils for your face, yeah. oils for your hair, oils for your body. Is, is that a good thing? In, in general, yes, um, but it's like you know, I, 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 there's so, the cosmetic industry and in, ingredients in particular, or a subset of ingredient like an oil. It, you have to take every ingredient at its face value because some oils are really great and some oils aren't, right? So you can't. It's not a general statement. Like olive oil, contrary to what some celebrities would say, is actually not good for your skin. It decreases the barrier function. It's not a good moisturizer, and that's been shown scientifically. So uh, oils that are good for the skin are have high linoleic acid, which are uh, metal foam oil, sunflower seed oil. Um, actually, coconut oil is is um, very good for the skin, uh, not for everybody, and, and put it on if it's near the face. Uh, if you put it on the face or if it's in the hair, it can give you acne. So, uh, you know, you, it's generally, uh, I like oils, but... Um, it depends on the oil. And it can be very hard. One of the things that, that drives me crazy is is uh, trying to read 
teeny, teeny, teeny type of ingredients yeah, on, on things like that. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it is challenging. And then I think a lot of people are moving to online. Um, I know that Procter & Gamble is going to put all of their ingredients online and also the, also the fragrance. Because, you know, we've talked about this before. Fragrance on a bottle, you don't actually know what's in it. It's 30 other ingredients, and they're not, they're not disclosed to the public for sometimes for proprietary reasons or trade reasons. But, um, yeah, I forgot one other really good oil for the skin is squalene. Squale- so, like, 100% squalene oil is it's great right. because squalene. Spell that. I don't, I've never heard of that. Oh, you haven't? No. Nope. S-Q-U-A-L-A-N-E. Okay. It, what it, what, yeah. What's it from? Um, well, you can, it can come from shark. Uh, cartilage, I believe, but it can. It's also made synthetically. But squalene is very high in linoleic acid. It's very good for the skin. It's not comedogenic. It doesn't cause like clogging of pores. It's a great vehicle to deliver some actives. And uh, if you want something that's really like got nothing in it, if you can get 100% squalene oil, it's on my product elimination diet list for the face. It's just one ingredient, so you're not going to have any hormone disruptors or any other toxins that people sometimes worry about that uh, that's a whole other topic, but um, yeah, so I like that. So uh, we only have uh, about a minute left. What would yeah. you like to leave us with? Um, I don't know. It's, it's uh, actually, it's uh, it's skin cancer month, May. Um, so everybody, we did touch on sunscreen. I think it's, you know, there's sometimes con- there's been controversy about, whether sunscreens are, are good or bad, they are they help decrease the incidence of skin cancer. There's no debate in that. If you're worried about uh, sunscreen ingredients and their safety, because there has been some concern, we can't we don't have time to go through that. Maybe another talk. Um, stick with mineral sunscreens, zinc and titanium only, and make sure you wear at least SPF 30. Avoid the sun between 11 and 3. Wear a hat, cover up, and have fun. And and. On that note, one more question. If I'm yeah. using a cosmetic mm-hmm. on my face with an SPF 30, is that enough? No, because uh, the teaspoon rule, right? You need at least a teaspoon of sunscreen for the face, and you're not going to put that in with a cosmetic. So you should put your sunscreen on first, and then your cosmetic over top. Okay. If you're reapplying, like it's nice to have a tinted uh, you know, moisturizer or foundation. You can reapply, but it's not enough. It's not a, you, you just quantity, like you, you, the SPF is dependent on the quantity. If you don't put the teaspoon of sunscreen on your face, you don't get the SPF number. Okay. Well, it's a lot less than a teaspoon. You're right. Yeah. Dr. Sandy Scott, Nikki, uh, we'll have to do this again soon sometime. So informative. Yeah. Thank you Thank so much. You. Thank you, Libby. Take good care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Right. Uh, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, big news, because I've been asking about what's up with the AstraZeneca doses all week, and it seems like they will be available for second doses for the more than 2 million Canadians who received those shots as a first dose. We'll get into that when we return. Before we go, the numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, and we'll be right back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.